Hello, this is Dan Linna. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Shannon Salter. Shannon is the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia, Canada's first online dispute resolution system. Shannon is also an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia Allard School of Law. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you, Shannon. Uh, Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, Headnote. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. Shannon, before we jump into talking about the CRT, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and then your journey to the Civil Resolution Tribunal? Sure. Well, like many of your listeners, I'm sure I'm a lawyer by training. And after I graduated from law school, I started practicing at a large Vancouver firm doing civil litigation, did that for a few years before my husband and I decided to move to Toronto and do master's degrees and have a baby. No big deal. <laughs> Piece of cake. Yes. Um, wouldn't necessarily recommend it to, <laughs> to your listeners, although it was right. a wonderful year. Uh, when I came back, I having sort of had a year to consider things, and of course, having a family changes your perspective as well, I transitioned into administrative law. So I became a decision maker for a senior tribunal here, kind of like your administrative courts that dealt with workers' compensation claims. And then after I did that for three or four years, uh, holding a lot of hearings, uh, issuing a lot of decisions, I applied for the posting as chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which at that point had been passed through legislation, but didn't actually exist as an entity and was really, really excited to get that role. Cool. Well, uh, can you just tell us uh, for our listeners then just what is this Civil Resolution Tribunal? Sure. The Civil Resolution Tribunal is the first example that we know of in the world where online dispute resolution, which I'll call ODR throughout the podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, online dispute resolution was integrated into the public justice system. So the CRT helps people resolve their condominium disputes, so apartment disputes, small claims disputes, $5,000 and under, nonprofit and nonprofit housing disputes, as well as, and this is the big ticket item, motor vehicle personal injury disputes as well. And that's a new area of jurisdiction for us. So we're part of the public justice system in the sense that if you have one of those disputes, you have to come to the CRT. And we issue effectively court orders. And if you don't like the CRT's decision, you can appeal that uh, to the court. But the way it works is very collaborative. It's meant to empower people with free legal information and tools as a first step, and then increasingly help them to resolve the dispute on their own if we can through negotiation and mediation. And really, we save adjudication or the more judge-like function as a last resort. Well, great. So first thing I want to do is kind of just level set here on just general terminology, because I sometimes hear people talk about online dispute resolution. And of course, that includes private parties providing services. But then they talk about online courts as being a whole different category. I mean, how do you kind of see the landscape in this area? How would you describe it? You're right that if you ask 100 people what ODR is, you'll get 100 (laughs) different answers. And same thing with online courts. I think uh, online dispute resolution, to me, connotes this idea of using technology to bring the justice system to where people are. And 
while this isn't you know something that's always embedded into ODR, I think really the gift of ODR is that it invites us to think critically about why it is we do all the things we do in the justice system. Why have we designed it the way it, it's designed? And can we use empirical evidence, human-centered design to do it completely differently? That's a pretty radical thing. It requires mm -hmm. complete business uh, redevelopment, process redesign. It's not just about using technology. And in fact, this is a bit controversial, but I think the online part is probably the least exciting part of ODR. Um, that gets me into trouble in online dispute <laughs> resolution communities. <laughs> By contrast, I think, you know, we don't really know what online courts mean. And that's because it's such a nascent idea in the more traditional court system. What I see some jurisdictions doing is saying, well, we know technology has to have a role in the justice system. So what we'll do is take these processes that we've used for hundreds of years. We won't really change them that much, but we will make them fillable PDF forms, or we will embark on an e-filing or e-discovery process. But none of that really fundamentally changes the way you deliver justice services, nor does it necessarily include user testing or human-centered design. So I think for our purposes, that's a useful distinction uh, because ODR and fundamentally redesigning the justice system is a much more challenging, but I think necessary task. Yeah. Well, so let's back up just a little bit then too, and talk about what was the original jurisdiction, but more specifically, how did this come about? And, and I know it was through the legislature, but can you tell us just a little bit about that and kind of the problem that they were aiming to solve initially? Sure. So this was the brainchild of a very creative, thoughtful, interdisciplinary group within the Ministry of Justice in British Columbia. And they identified that the condominium community had a real problem. They had all these little neighbor disputes that happened in these apartment buildings, which are shared by hundreds of owners sometimes. And those hundreds of owners sometimes don't agree about what color the wall should be or what the noise level mm -hmm. should be or how money should be spent. And they didn't have a really good way to resolve those disputes, but they're pervasive because about half our population either lives in a condominium or owns a condominium or works out of a condominium. Those disputes had to go to our superior court, which was a disproportionate way to resolve disputes, which were often really annoying to people, but not particularly high value or not necessarily terribly complex either. And so as a result, these disputes just tended not to go anywhere. They would just fester. And it became a real problem for the community. And so this dispute resolution office in the Ministry of Justice thought, well, here's an opportunity to pioneer online dispute resolution in the public justice system. Because we know that online dispute resolution can solve millions and millions of e-commerce, uh, trans-border disputes through eBay and PayPal. It had proven its success there, but can we capitalize on that success and take elements of it and bring it into the public system? And so that's what they did. They proposed legislation uh, to be able to resolve these disputes, and the legislature passed it in 2012. And then you came on board, and how did you go about building this out? Well, I was lucky enough to work with this really fantastic group within the Ministry of Justice. And at that point, when I was appointed in 2014, I was the only real member of the CRT. It was me here <laughs> in my yeah. in my office in North Vancouver, uh, mm -hmm. working with this really dedicated group of people in Victoria. And then slowly, we built out our team. So I was able to hire our executive director and registrar, Richard Rogers, and the two of us really kept hiring people until now we have about 70 full-time staff members and tribunal members. Uh, but it was a, a challenging process. And the first thing that we 
sort of tried to think about was, well, we've been given this gift and this curse of a blank slate. There wasn't a path to follow. There wasn't any model in the world where this had been done yet. And so we really tried to find empirical evidence to support doing things one way over the other. And one of the really shocking things we found was how little empirical evidence we have about the way our justice system works. Yeah, And that's yeah. true in Canada. I know that's true in mm-hmm, the US. Mm-hmm. It's true in the UK and really everywhere I go in the world. We have a lot of assumptions about why things are or how they should work, but they're largely untested and mostly mm-hmm. the product of just always having done it that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, because of this data paucity issue, we had to go out and find this information ourselves, which we did through commissioning research, uh, doing a lot of user testing, working with stakeholders, primarily community advocates, and really going from there. Well, so tell us now about how this works. And I think one of the, well, one of the many very interesting things about this, it's not just adjudication, but there's this, the solution explorer approach. Well, tell us just kind of about when people get engaged and all the things it does for them. Sure. So, so bear with me because it's a four-step <laughs> okay. process, All right. arguably five-step process. Uh-huh. But you're right. So our, our traditional civil justice model is premised on the idea that you'll go to court, that if you mm-hmm. go down to the court registry, file your documents, pay your fees, at some point, maybe years later, you'll end up in front of a judge. The one statistic we're really certain of in all of our countries is that that's largely untrue. Right. Uh, it's usually true 80, sorry, 98 to 99% of the time. Um, Now, we don't really know what happens to those other cases. So in other words, out of every 100 people who take the time to go and file their paperwork and pay their fee, only on average one will end up in front of a judge. Mm -hmm. We assume that the other 99 settle, but we don't actually have good data about that. What we do know is that it's likely that people who are unrepresented by counsel don't tend to settle. They give up, sort of the attrition effect. Mm -hmm. Um, But nevertheless, we make Everybody take the same steps, more or less, in the life of their civil justice claim predicated on this assumption that you'll go before a judge. And many of these steps are quite useless in a lot of ways if you don't go in front of a judge. So what we've tried to do is flip the model and say, well, we assume you're not going to end up in front of a tribunal member, just like the judge in our system. Mm -hmm. We assume that with the right support, we can help you resolve your dispute yourself. So we start with the Solution Explorer, which is a very basic form of artificial intelligence. It's a little cagey at this moment, whether to even call it AI because of how far AI has come in the last few years. What would you say? It's rules systems, kind of expert exactly. systems? Exactly. It's some, an expert yeah. system. Okay. It's an expert sure. system. And your audience will uh, be able to distinguish those things better than most audiences I, I speak to. But you know, at the time, it was pretty exciting to be able to take, and I think still is in the public justice space, the idea of taking this expert knowledge that we've worked so hard to accumulate as lawyers and democratize access to it for people who either through distance, geography, education level, or or financial reasons can't access it easily. And that's exactly what we did. So using this expert system, we give people pretty granular information about their legal problems through asking them questions and then tools like template letters that are pre-populated that they can use to try and solve the problem themselves. If that doesn't work, they can apply for dispute resolution seamlessly from that system. And we take care of serving the respondent When the parties come in, they're invited to negotiate, which they do through a virtual chat room, kind of looks like Facebook Messenger. And that's by design, because one of the things we found out is that the more we can design technology to look like what people already do online, the easier time they have using it. Totally common sense, but not principles that are readily adopted by large institutions sometimes, particularly public institutions. 
So that doesn't resolve tons of disputes, but if people are able to negotiate successfully, we can turn their agreement into effectively a court order and we refund their fees. Most people don't need help, and that's where one of our trained mediators steps in. They work with the parties through whatever communication method they prefer, help them reach an agreement if they can, and that too can be turned into a tribunal order. And then finally, it's only when all else fails that we assign the case to a tribunal member and the parties upload their evidence and their submissions electronically. Those are exchanged, and then the case is packaged up and assigned to a member who writes their decision also from their home. About 80 to 90% of all of our staff and tribunal members work remotely. We have almost no commercial footprint at all. Uh, so this is all done remotely. Um, the member writes their decision or holds an oral hearing using Skype. And then the decision is emailed to the parties and also published on our website and also on Canly, which is our version of your Cornell Lee. I yes. always mangle this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The Cornell uh, Information Institute where they have. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of simultaneously all of those things happen. Uh, so it's pretty transparent that way. And really somebody who has any of these problems within our area of jurisdiction can do the entire process from their smartphone on their couch after their kids are in bed, after their work day is done, whenever they want to, including receiving the decision and the court order on their phone. Great. Yeah. So one of the things I want to just backtrack to just a little bit was I know that your jurisdiction has been expanded and just for our listeners. So originally, what was the jurisdiction you have and, the, and then what are the things that have been added? Yeah, it, it's been an exciting three years. I was in the Netherlands a couple of weeks ago speaking at their Council of State, which is about to celebrate its 500th year anniversary. And I was explaining to them that we're only about three years old, which kind of made <laughs> me feel like we were the toddler yeah. of the justice system. <laughs> Yeah. But it's been an exciting three years. So in July 2016, we started accepting condominium disputes, get about 600 of those every year. Uh, then a year later, the government gave us jurisdiction over small claims, 5,000 and under. We get about 5,000 of those every year. And then this past April, we assumed jurisdiction over most motor vehicle personal injury disputes in the province, which is a pretty big scale up. Yeah. All right. So I have some questions about those, but I, I, I want to, to go back just briefly on the, the technology and about how this is built. What underlying tools are you using? Our whole system is built on Salesforce. And that's maybe a bit surprising in the justice space to be building your system on an e-commerce customer management platform. But if you think about it, customer management platforms have a lot in common with case management systems, right? You have to create flags for staff, you record particular information or transactions, and you can create documents and send them out as well. And so at the time, Salesforce was able to do all of these things in a very robust, secure, cloud-based environment. So we bought that off the shelf or licensed it, as anyone can do. And then the Ministry of Justice contracted with PricewaterhouseCooper to build essentially two applications to integrate with Salesforce. And so that lightweight component is what we built that was customized for the justice system using an agile development process. Well, another one of the many things that I love about this is, is before you even started, it was meant to be an empirical endeavor. You're, you're very data-driven in everything that you're doing. And so what are, what are the kind of metrics that you're tracking? And, and are the people who are going through this process, are they, are they satisfied with the process? It's Always an interesting question, how do you measure access to justice? How do you measure your net contribution to the space? But some of our key KPIs include time to resolution, 
cost per case, things like settlement rates, how how successful are we at helping people to reach a resolution before it goes to a tribunal member. Um, We certainly look at appeal rates as well. But a big part of our measurement or big part of our metrics are actually the subjective Uh, opinions of people who have gone through the process. We survey people who have gone through the process as participants. We don't ask them if they agree with the outcome, because that's a question potentially for Mm -hmm. the court. But we do ask them questions like, did the CRT treat you fairly throughout the process? Would you recommend it to others? Did we resolve your dispute in a timely manner? Those kinds of things. And we get consistently pretty high scores. Consistently between 80 and 85% of people agree that we treated them fairly and also would recommend it to others having been through the process. And we publish these statistics every month on our website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the transparency. I love publishing those statistics every every month. That That's really helpful. I mean, l- let me push you just a little bit more on the, the greater access to justice question, right? So it's great to know that people are satisfied. And I mean, h- how are you trying to measure that? And how can we really get a sense for whether we're, we're I mean, because it seems like for so long in most jurisdictions, we've been stuck on these numbers that are just abysmal. And is do you think this is making a dent? I do. And that's what people are telling us as as well, which is really exciting. Uh, Importantly to me, that's also been the feedback from community legal advocates who represent people who have the most difficulty traditionally accessing our justice system. Uh, We've built our testing methodology around them and their clients. And so it's really heartening when we get good feedback that we're meeting their clients' needs. And I guess it segues into an interesting point. I think what you're trying to measure is very much driven by how you design and who you're trying to serve. And for us, we're really clear that it's not about designing for lawyers or other justice actors Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. trying to scale up or down to make sure it works for everybody else. That's going to lead to kind of a Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. You're probably not going to serve those more heavily barrier clients very well. And so our methodology is, is quite the opposite. We start with the people who are traditionally harder to serve because they have specific circumstances and challenges. They may be people with a low income. They may have a health, mental health issue. They may have a physical or, or mental impairment. Uh, they may not speak English as a first language. Those are the people we want to design for first and foremost. And we do that by testing everything we design with community legal advocates who are working with those folks every day. Ideally, you test with the clients themselves, but oftentimes they have more pressing things to do than test our software or our rules form, for example. Mm -hmm. And so we start with them and then real time, they beat up whatever we've designed and we make changes. And then we test with ordinary members of the public and we make more changes. And then last but not least, we test with lawyers. So that testing methodology also drives what we're worried about measuring. We want to make sure that we're not leaving people behind, that people are not falling through the crack. And that's what we're really focused on. I think there's some uh, projects that are really focused on cost cutting. And so your KPIs might be different if you're doing that. That said, I think those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. I think you can provide much better quality services to people, particularly traditionally marginalized people, and also be pretty lean on the ground and financially viable. Because you know the existing justice system isn't particularly cost-effective in certain ways. Um, I give you the example before of how 80 to 90 percent of our staff work remotely from their homes. Well, the only equipment they have is a computer, maybe a monitor, and a cell phone. And because of that, our operational budget is almost entirely staff salaries. Um, we're paperless. We have almost no other overhead. 
Yeah, well, and I think this is where it's so important about thinking about whether we're measuring all the right things in connection with all this. I, I mean, I do think I'm interested in hearing what you think as far as the cost, the cost of a government running this, because of course, it sounds high touch. But then when you think about the rules driven system part of it, and the fact that you can bring parties together, and they can maybe be able to resolve things without ever having a human have to work with them. Uh, but then, you know, the other thing is just thinking about the other benefits for society. And there's a lot of statistics like that, that by providing access like this, we expect other economic benefits as well. What do you think about those ideas? I think it's it's really, that is really interesting. I think it does seem, I hope that it seems like a very human driven process, despite being predominantly online, because that is the culture. The culture is Mm -hmm. about inclusivity. And I think there's huge dividends to be had in having the automation do the heavy repetitive lifting and having the humans do the high value, emotionally intelligent work of providing support to people who traditionally have have struggled or might be even struggling in the CRT process, the high value work of mediating, the high value work of analyzing evidence and making mm-hmm, a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, when you have, when our, our frontline staff are called resolution support clerks, and they traditionally, they do the role traditionally done by court registry staff. But the skill set that we're hiring those folks for is really different. We're predominantly hiring them for their customer service skills. We get a lot of people from call center backgrounds or from retail backgrounds. Mm -hmm. We're not so much hiring them for their clerical skills. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they're not doing data entry all day long. Mm -hmm. They're not shuffling paper or working with paper. You know, the parties fill out the forms themselves. But what that means is that they can spend a lot of time on the phone with people who might need a little bit of extra help and a little bit of support. So I think it there, there are huge dividends to using and leveraging technology to be able to provide actually a lot more human support because you're freeing up time and energy and skills that would otherwise be used with very high volume, repeatable stuff that you can automate through business rules. Mm-hmm. Another really important question in this space that I hear come up frequently, and you indirectly addressed this earlier, but a lot of people worry about the existence of a digital divide still. And and I think most places that's less and less of a problem that majority of people, vast, vast majority of people have access. But I mean, how much of a concern is that? And how have you addressed that concern? That was a big concern before we opened. Based on our research, we thought maybe 10 or 15% of people would choose not to engage online. That hasn't really materialized. And I should pause by saying that we're predominantly online, but we also offer mail, telephone, uh, video conference services, as well as in-person help at about 60 service BC counters, so government service points around the province. That said, over 99.9% of people have chosen to participate online. We get almost nobody opting out of email. And I think that what that tells us is that if you can design really easy to use technology, if you make it easy for somebody to get a trusted friend or family member to help on the couch in the evenings, Mm -hmm. um, people would rather do that than even deal with finding a stamp and mailing a letter for the most part. But you still have to offer those other channels because there is a divide. There will always be Mm -hmm, some folks mm -hmm. who aren't able to access online services. So those other channels are not going anywhere. But I used to hear all the time, well, you can't do Mm -hmm. ODR because not everybody's online, which is kind of absurd on its face. The way Mm -hmm. to deal with that is through design and through offering multiple channels, which over time may go extinct if we ever get to the point of 100% people online. But until then, we're an access to justice project and we'll always offer other ways for people to engage. And that's what I mean by not just checking the box of, well, we're doing e-filing or 
e-discovery, it's really about how do we look at that particular human who has a problem and figure out what they need to be able to resolve it. And if what they need is a paper form, then that's part of the equation. Uh, but it's a human-centered equation. It's not just about using technology to do that which you used to do manually. Yeah. Well, it's so great to hear this about, about how you've addressed that concern and the success that you've been having. And I, I want to talk about how lawyers have responded, particularly as your jurisdiction has been expanding a bit. But before we continue our, our interview with Shannon Salter, the chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Shannon Salter, chair of the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia. And Shannon, before we went to the break, I, I mentioned I I'd like to talk a little bit about one of the reasons why you've had such great success is you've been able to build something from the ground up that is really focused on, on people who have the disputes, right? The, the individuals, the participants in, in the system, and not having to design a system for lawyers. Uh, what's been the reaction from lawyers now as the as jurisdiction has expanded with the, well, may, maybe even right from the beginning, but, and I know jurisdiction expanding would probably capture the attention of lawyers as well, but can you talk to that just a little bit maybe? Sure. So I think when this was first proposed, there was a lot of uncertainty about what it would look like. And I think it's fair to say there's probably a fair bit of concern too, that this might be just a cost-cutting measure and might actually take away people's access to justice. I think as we implemented, though, people could see that really we're very committed to ensuring accessibility and inclusivity. And I think that won over a lot of folks, both lawyers, but also other stakeholders as well. And largely, we've had a lot of uh, support from the legal community in a lot of ways. They are the experts behind the Solution Explorer. They're volunteers who you know, give up their time to be able to give us this content. Uh, and have supported the tribunal in other ways as well. All of our tribunal members are lawyers, for example, a number of our mediators are too. That said, I think I think the CRT is is growing at the same time that there's a lot of change in the legal profession. And I see that anxiety in my students, but also in practicing lawyers. And we're all having to ask ourselves tough questions about what the legal profession will look like in five, 10, 15 years. What role will technology play? Is our industry really immune from disruption, unlike every other modern industry? And these are tough questions in uh, a sector that's traditionally been very, very reluctant to change, quite change adverse, quite risk adverse in a lot of ways. So I think that's all really challenging. Um, certainly more acutely, I think it's fair to say that personal injury lawyers are largely not supportive of this change. But of course, our job is to take the mandate that we've been given by the legislature and implement this new area of jurisdiction as transparently and accessibly as we have everything else. And that's what we're focused on. 
Well, if, if I understand also what happened like around the personal injury, for example, it's not just the jurisdiction, but there's been some substantive changes to law also around that. Is that maybe part of what's wrapped all up into this as well? Or It's true that this, the changes to the CRT's jurisdiction were part of a, a quite a large package of changes to our public auto insurance program in British Columbia. We have a mandatory public insurer for car accidents. Uh, and so this was part of a, a much larger package of changes. Yeah, well, going back to kind of tapping into, you mentioned you teach in a law school um, and you know, thinking about if we want to expand access to justice, it seems pretty clear we need to engage in endeavors like this. And we, and we really need to encourage attorneys to think about areas where they can add greater value, like where there's really contributing to um, great value for their clients. I mean, just wh- where do you think are some of the opportunities that you see that are kind of connected to the changes that you're helping put into place in the marketplace? Right. Not specific to the CRT, but in general, I think there's tremendous opportunity here. Of course, mm-hmm. it's worrying and scary, especially if you've practiced a certain way for many, many years. But I think particularly for newer graduates who might be a little less tied to to that methodology, there's an opportunity to provide services in a completely different manner, to provide services from your home, to provide services via Skype, to unbundle your services, to really target areas where there's a high public need and low overhead for you. And so the opportunity to build a business around that. But you're right. The key question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is my value proposition? And if, as a lawyer, your value proposition is built on the fact that the legal system hasn't changed in hundreds of years and is excessively confusing, expensive, complex, and alienating, and you are an intermediary between that that system and the party, then I think that's a bit of a precarious business proposition or value proposition, because what that means is that if we finally change that system to make it more accessible, then your business model changes or collapses. So I think... It really is about figuring out where we add value as lawyers. And I think there are a lot of ways that we do, but we have to zoom in on those and probably let go of some of the the ways that are, are more precarious or ripe for disruption. Another concern that I hear about online dispute resolution, and, and this is a little bit, I think, disconnected from the current reality, is this idea that if we make it too easy to file a claim and bring a dispute before a tribunal, that we're gonna, there's going to be this flood of claims coming in. And, and um, so we've, we've, we've made it too easy. Now, we've reduced some of the friction that could be a good thing maybe in the system. Again, I think it's a little disconnected from reality, but how do you address that, that kind of concern in the system? I've heard that concern a lot, and it, it's one I'm not very sympathetic to. First of all, it hasn't materialized mm-hmm. in any of the areas of jurisdiction we've had so far. The second is that if we give people legal rights and we say that they have certain remedies to enforce those rights, it's a bit of a bait and switch to say, but we don't really want you to try because we're going to make it really difficult for you. So we say on paper you have these, these rights and remedies, but really they're immaterial because you have to be so elite to be able to afford to pursue them. I don't have a lot of sympathy for the idea that that friction, as you call it, which is really complexity, um, cost and time um, should be the thing that that makes our caseloads manageable. It's true that if you increase access to justice, you're tearing down those barriers and you're tearing down the fences. And yeah, lots of people are going to be able to come over. And that may mean that along with those folks, you get a few claims that are unmeritorious. But we have other ways to deal with that as well. We have a statutory Mm -hmm. provision that lets us dismiss claims that are an Mm -hmm. abusive process. 
It's also why you have application fees to try and deter people from bringing meritless claims. But I don't think it can be an answer to the access to justice crisis to say, well, we're going to rely on mass kind of confusion and alienation from our justice system in order to control case volume numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, now the other piece of this is I hear people sometimes say that if we in the U.S., for example, when I've heard people talk about putting small claims and doing that online, that, oh, well, small claims is already an instrumentality uh, of these creditors. And if we make it even easier then that, that problem will just get worse. But again, I think there are things like if we want uh, debtors to have substance rights and let's make sure they have substance rights, let's make sure the procedure actually works so we don't have debts that aren't actually owned or enforceable. I mean, how are you dealing with issues like that? That is a big issue. I mean, any small claims court around the world, and by extension us, deals with a really high volume of small debts and a very Mm -hmm. high default rate for those debts. Our hope was that by giving people free legal information up front about what their rights are and things like the limitation period, which may offer a defense in some Mm -hmm. situations, as well as information about statutory limits on things like interest, that we'd be able to empower them with information, but also give them tools to propose a repayment plan, for example. We still have a pretty high default rate in the CRT for debts. I believe it's lower than most courts, but it's still too high for our liking. And so we are taking, trying to take other steps too to bring it down. Uh, one of the things that we did was started an initiative where we serve the respondent now. So we're serving in many cases, the person who's alleged to owe the debt. And what we've seen is the default rate has come down a fair bit because of that. Mm, yeah, um, People seem more receptive to receiving information from mm-hmm. us maybe than the, yeah. the creditor. But it is a challenge. I mean, the, the and it's a human challenge. It's that the person who is in that situation from my pro bono experience often has a number of other problems they're dealing with as well. They may have mm-hmm. housing problems. They have, may have mental health issues. They may have employment issues. And it's overwhelming. I don't think it helps to add to the anxiety by sort of pushing people in a process which is inherently kind of confusing, which most court processes are. So I I hope that the CRT continues to find ways that we can uh, make people aware of their rights in those situations, um, help them to maybe propose repayment plans or restructure their financial situation in a way that's better for them. But but you're right, default rates for small claim debt matters is, is a persistent problem everywhere. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's going on uh, around the world. And and I would love to see more courts in the U.S., for example, looking at what you've been able to, to do. And I know, in fact, that you're consulting with some courts. Can you tell us, do you have a general sense of, of what's going on in the U.S. in this area? I do. It's, it's interesting that five years ago when I was appointed, there really wasn't anything. As I, as I mentioned, there was no path mm-hmm. to follow. And in that short time, it's like we've reached a bit of a tipping point. And now there's pro- mm-hmm. massive projects in the UK, in Australia, in Singapore, in China, and yes, in the US as well. So I know that there are projects for small claims ODR in, in Utah. Um, Michigan has a traffic court ODR project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, New Mexico and Nevada both have projects, I believe, for family. And there's other ones that are popping up all the time. It's really exciting. I think of those, Utah is the furthest ahead. And I did do a small bit of uh, sort of free consultation with them a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago, really driven by a judiciary that was quite focused on this, or at least one member of a judiciary that was quite focused on it and and brought Mm -hmm. it into fruition. So it's really exciting for you folks to have a domestic example of how this could work for small claims at least. Yeah. 
And uh, how do we get more courts? Like, so if we're, I'm a lawyer in, in a particular area in the country, and I really think this is important. I mean, based on what you've seen, how do you think people can, can start getting this process going, whether it's getting legislature or their, their Supreme Court or others in, involved? Well, I think there's a, a few different few different answers to that question. But on a very basic level, I think it starts by asking yourself as a court administrator or a judge, what is the experience like of somebody who has to navigate this? And really kind of tracing that journey from their eyes, like literally going into the court registry lineup with a clipboard and start talking to people. What brought you here today? How long is it taking you? How much has it cost? Mm -hmm. Did you have to take time off work? Did you have to arrange childcare? Did you have any help? How many wrong places did you go before you came here? What is it you're trying to do? Um, those basic questions. And then even having people fill out your forms and seeing where they go wrong, uh, designing with them. There's a, I guess my point is that there's a lot you can do culturally without any technology at all. And unless mm -hmm. you change the culture, it's really difficult to just glue technology on top of it and call it done, which is kind of a theme of what we've been talking about. So mm -hmm. that's one thing that people can do now. In terms of uh, being able to initiate a pilot project, I think it does require a degree of um, leadership from all levels of decision maker and a willingness to withstand the kind of pressures that might augur in favor of, of the status quo. And that, that does require a, a fair degree of resolve. It also requires um, having a capacity for change management to go out and really sell the vision to stakeholders as well and to bring them on board as really co-designers of it. Uh, but if so, so that's a bit of a granular answer and a more macro answer. And mm -hmm. I think in between, there is the question of how do you change a culture of an existing institution, which I recognize was not a problem I had to deal with. We certainly had to liaise with a lot of longstanding institutions, but because I was able to basically handpick everybody I work with who were excited about this sort of startup culture, we didn't have some of those kinds of change management pro um, problems, which I know can be a real issue if you're you know walking into a court that has done things a certain way for hundreds of years and, and telling people who have done their jobs a certain way for 30 years well guess what tomorrow we're going to do it differently i think there are a lot of ways around that if you, a lot of ideas yeah. about how you yeah. would get around that uh, richard suskin likes to talk about how you can't change the the tires on a moving car but you mm -hmm. can build another car alongside it and i think you can do that within a court as well you can identify an issue type you can identify people who are thought leaders and change leaders and build a coalition of the willing and, and let the rest of the system operate as it does while you build out one area, get some early successes, get some good metrics, and then slowly over time expand. I, I think just as one last note on that, it was a really smart decision for the Ministry of Justice in BC to pick condominium disputes as the first area. Condominium disputes and small claims are important to the people who have them but they're not life or death issues. You know, nobody is going to jail, nobody is losing their children. So as an area to experiment in, I think it makes sense to pick an area that's a high pain point for the public, but where the stakes are relatively low. Yeah, and I loved what you initially said, which to me is we should be aiming high and we should be thinking about we need online dispute resolution, we need online courts, we need all of this, but there's so many opportunities just to learn from your experience and think about how do we embrace human-centered design? How do we talk to the people going through the system? How do we, I was fortunate to be part of some projects at Michigan State where we went and worked with uh, local judges and they got us integrated working with the court clerks, right? Just learning more about what's going on and how do we improve things on the ground now in that 
gathering that information could help us then in this whole change management process and help us figure out the sort of ODR systems we could build that would be successful. Exactly. And it's in some ways antithetical to our education because we're taught to be the experts. We're taught to be Mm -hmm. the people who have the Mm -hmm. answers, but really the people who have the answers to this problem are in that lineup in your court registry. And I'll give you another example of um, how you can do this kind of change in a real way for no money, uh, everything that we write in the system is at a sixth grade reading level because that's mm-hmm. the average reading level in Canada. And we use free online readability tools to mm-hmm. audit ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's something that you can do with no technology and no money, but it does require a great deal of, I think, discipline and kind of egoless <laughs> writing yeah. to be able to, to do that. Um, and that's everything from our website content to the Solution Explorer to our, our decisions as well. Things like having culturally competent staff, staff who have training in mental Mm -hmm. health issues, uh, training in trauma-informed practice, testing with the public, asking people if they need special accommodation throughout the process. These are human things that are not technology things. But but again, you know, I think the the invitation that ODR has for us is the opportunity to question everything. You mentioned Richard Susskind, and I know he's heavily involved in the UK online courts project. As a matter of fact, he has a book coming out uh, on on that, can you just kind of tell us uh, what's happening in the UK? The UK is embarking, or it has embarked, on a one billion pound justice system reform project that has many moving parts. But one part of it is an online court um, having online money claims, online divorce, and it really is quite a wholesale transformation of the entire justice system in the UK. It's a very ambitious project, and as you point out, yes, Richard Susskind was has been a thought leader in this area for many years and was instrumental in kind of conceiving of of what that might look like, along with uh, Lord Justice Briggs, who is now on the Supreme Court in the UK. And you're right, Richard does have a new book coming out, and I got the chance to read an advanced copy. I would highly recommend it to your listeners. I think it's probably coming out around the same time as this podcast. Great, great. Anything else we should know about kind of internationally, like notable uh, online court movements? I have a Google alert set up for online dispute resolution. And what I find heartening is every week, two weeks at the maximum, there's a new pilot project somewhere in the world using online dispute resolution or some component of it. Consistently in surveys of your state courts, it's a top three item in terms of interest from the court. So I think we are reaching this tipping point and it is an exciting opportunity. There are way more off the shelf solutions now than there were five years ago. And so you know, in terms of information or advice, I think it is really helpful that there are so many models now around the world that you can turn to. It's, it's much more reassuring for policymakers, legislators, and, and courts themselves to be able to say, well, we've got a, a model already in the public justice system that we can look to for advice, statistics, information, budgets, all of those things. Shannon, we're coming pretty close to the end of our time here, but I did want to ask you, what do you see as the future of online dispute resolution? I mean, where should we be pushing to to go? And I think at the same time, are, are there areas where we think this that that we need to keep it in person and and this and online dispute resolution isn't maybe going to affect it much? I think online dispute resolution is really the effect of human-centered design in these areas. And so the bigger question, I think, is, is there an area of the justice system where we shouldn't be using human-centered design, whatever Mm -hmm. outcomes or processes that leads us to? And I think the answer is no. I don't know anything about criminal law. But it seems to me that even in criminal law, 
viewing the process from the perspective of the humanity of the accused or other actors in the system uh, would likely lead to process reform that could include the use of technology, but may also include the use of other tools that are all about designing around the human need. Uh, so I think we don't know the limits, A, of ODR, but I think we can certainly say with some degree of confidence that human-centered design absolutely has a role to play in every aspect of our justice system. But that is a hard thing to do. It's much easier to do the technology piece than it is mm -hmm. to do the human-centered design piece. Because if we truly did that, I think many, many areas of our justice system would have to be fundamentally reconfigured. That's a great way to look at it. And I think the other consideration too is the way things around us are changing so rapidly. Like you even alluded to earlier, I think that our idea of what it means to be in person may change. I mean, we're community, we're, we're, we can see each other via Zoom right now as we're recording this, and it's not quite the same as being in person. And, but all these technologies are rapidly evolving as well, too, to be able to have an experience that uh, in, it will be just like we're all in the same room, even though we can be on different corners of the planet. That's true. We, t we tend to also undervalue some of the benefits of not being in person. In mediation, there are some benefits. Yeah, Sometimes it is point. enraging for people to see <laughs> the person they're in a dispute yeah. with. Yeah. There's also some interesting research about how seeing your own face on a Skype uh, call and seeing your own affect affects your own self-regulation. So mm. if you're not trying to appear angry, but you see that you are, you can self-correct. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. There's certainly some things that can be lost in some circumstances, but we have to zoom out and see that for a lot of folks, getting to a courthouse involves so much cost and difficulty and frankly, a lot of anxiety too in many cases, and that there are harms in that as well. Um, so it is a really interesting point. And I agree with you that the technology is always changing, which is another reason to focus on the human-centered design part right. yeah. more than the specific technological outcomes. Right, right. Well, this has been fascinating, Shannon. And uh, but before we let you go, I'd, I want to make sure that our listeners know how to find information about the Civil Resolution Tribunal, and then also how they can they can contact you. And then you mentioned the blog as well, which is an important resource. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so our website is civilresolutionbc.ca, and we are really active on Twitter. So you can follow the tribunal at civresTribunal or me at Shannon N. Salter. And uh, we also have a Facebook account. So please do uh, follow along. Come on, the, come on the journey with us. <laughs> well, great. Thank you so much for joining us, Shannon. And, and thanks for all the great work you and your, your, your colleagues are doing. It's really a great example and, and uh, the way you're doing it so we can all learn and with the transparency and the information releasing, it's, it's, it's really great. Thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate it. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. Please take a minute to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Linna. Please follow me, retweet links to this episode, and join the legal innovation and technology discussion online. And join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.